lovers, welcome to Get Real, a podcast hosted by the National Animal Interest Alliance through which we'll have deeply honest conversations about animal research so we can learn together and make compassionate choices about our medical future together. Welcome to Episode 9 of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and today we're joined by Dr. Jody Solinsky from the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Dr. Solinsky received a veterinary degree at Oregon State University here in the U.S. and has held a variety of veterinary positions in New Zealand since 2003 that included the SPCA and multiple zoos. Now, she found her passion for laboratory animal medicine about five years ago and has never looked back. She is now on a mission to hold the research and animal rights communities accountable for getting real with the public. Some of what she shares with us today may surprise you. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Solinsky. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I have been excited about this particular episode for months uh, since we first spoke about it. And I think the listeners are really going to enjoy it. As you and all of our listeners know, Get Real is all about truth and transparency. And you are my new hero in New Zealand for truth and transparency. I consider you to be a truth and transparency warrior. (laughs) And I can't wait for you to share the things we've discussed with uh, our listeners today. I think before we do that, though, it will be helpful for them to have a sense of, you know, who you are, where you are, uh, what your general responsibilities are in the institution you represent. So if you can take a few moments and fill everybody in on that, that would be amazing. I'm the Animal Welfare Officer at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, and this role is much like that of an attending veterinarian in the U.S. I oversee animal health and welfare at the university and am dedicated to doing the best for our animals, our people, our research, and I always aim to continuously drive new initiatives and improve what we do around animal research at the university. I even run the monthly training sessions on legislation, animal welfare, and ethics so that I can look all researchers new to the organization in the eye and let them know what is expected of them, what is expected at the university and in New Zealand, and who is here to help with the important work that's being done. We have to take excellent care of our animals and our people to do the best work possible. The use of animals to do research is a privilege and not a right. In New Zealand, all research is aimed at improving animal health and welfare, human health and welfare, and the health of the environment, or investigating the important basic science that helps us accomplish these goals. I love it. And and I love uh, your reinforcement of something I say all the time as well, right? Working with these animals is a privilege. It's not a right. And we have to get it right. And and I just love how uh, passionate you are about that. So getting back to the transparency thing, um, I really want to talk about that. You have a very strong personal interest in transparency when it comes to working with animals and research, you know, and it, maybe you can tell us, you know, why you feel this way. Why is this so important to you? Well, We just really, really need to be more open about the animal research that we do. And we've got to include the public in our communication in as many ways as possible, whether that's by scientists thanking the animals in interviews that they do and saying that they couldn't have developed the cure or device or treatment or advancement without them, to talks in schools, to simply putting more information out on our research institution websites so that if people do look on the internet and Google animal research, They find real information, pictures and videos, and not what dominates the internet, 
which tends to be misleading information from organizations that don't support research. If they don't hear from us what we are doing and why, then how will they ever know the importance of the research? The conversation has been one-sided for too long, and there were very good reasons for that. We, we know that there are very good reasons for that. But the issue is that if all our community sees is one side of the story in the media, then what are they supposed to believe? We've got to let them know that there are legal and ethical frameworks that are considered for animal research to take place, that we've got animal care and use committees or animal ethics committees that consider applications for animal research, that there are researchers and animal care staff, technicians and veterinarians that love and care for animals, and that we constantly aim to improve the welfare of animals, we try not to use animals, and we keep the number of animals used to the minimum possible. We have to share that information with them. They deserve it. Whether their tax dollars support the research or not, we have to let them know. I'm not saying they're going to like it, but if they can understand that we are not monsters, but loving, caring, kind, and compassionate people who would do anything for our animals and are committed to finding cures and treatments for diseases in animals and humans, and that this research must be supported until there is a better way, then that would be absolutely fantastic. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, you're at the University of Auckland, and, and do they give you the freedom to speak to the public directly? You know, I don't know what that means talking to the public. I feel like I do talk to the public in the sense that I really believe that in-reach is more important than outreach. You know, we've got over 50,000 staff and students. So I go and speak to classes, to first-year university students, and I speak to them about what is happening and why and how we do research and, you know, the ethics around that and the laws around that. And they're actually delighted to know what rules and regulations there are and that people love and care for the animals and how much the university strives to constantly do better in regards to the three R's and re improving research outcomes. I probably don't stand on a street corner and talk to the public. When I arrived at the University of Auckland five years ago and started talking about openness, I often say that people would look at me like I was growing a second head out of my neck and that I should get straight to the hospital to have that removed. Um, you know, it was absolutely like, uh, no way. And over the years, they've absolutely shifted their thinking and really let me take the reins on this. I actually do feel incredibly supported by my organization. They've really allowed me to drive the movement in the institution in New Zealand. They allow me to speak at various conferences and workshops and to speak to students and staff about what's happening. Yeah, well, that definitely qualifies as the public. And of course, all of those people will share what they learn from you with their friends and families and, and other people, you know, outside of the university and the people you're speaking to in the university, most of them are not involved in the animal program. In fact, in my experience, most people who work in institutions where animal research is happening don't even know that that's happening. You know, so so I think that's really powerful. And you mentioned now that, you know, the institution five years ago, they looked at you, you know, like you needed medical help when when, when you suggested um, that they be more open. And, you know, why why do you think that was? Oh, honestly, it's it's all about fear. You know, it was absolutely driven by fear, as many institutions, right? They worried that even positive attention would be seen as negative. I recall our, one of our staff member winning an, an animal welfare award and they wouldn't allow that to be publicized. I mean, it was fear of 
something happening to their staff, you know, it was protection. It was fear of what would happen to the university, what would possibly happen to the staff. Um, and that's longstanding. There's like a PTSD thing. You know, a lot of people experience bad things 20 or 30 years ago, and they're still holding that today. Bad things from the public or bad things from whom? Bad things from uh, animal rights and animal activist groups. So, you know, they remember the days when people were psychologically and physically harassed and they're concerned that that could happen again. It, it's not something that would happen now in New Zealand. So now staying quiet is going to hurt you more than speaking up. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I'm looking forward to a day when we can get to that place in the United States as well. So what is it exactly um, that you did or that you think happened that fostered this sort of shift in the way they felt about openness? Because they, they're very supportive of you now, right? Oh, yeah. They're, um, they're very, very supportive of me now. And it took me, again, years and really going through and thinking about, right, what do I need to do? Where are the barriers? How do I get around this whole thing. You know, there's that thing in a university where they're saying, oh, well, so-and-so wouldn't like that, or no, no, nobody's going to let you do that. And, oh, that's not going to happen. And so actually what I did was I had a look around and I kept my ear to the ground and I thought, right, what do I need to do? Who do I need to target? And I did that. I really worked to find who the people were that I needed to talk to and to go and allay their fears and present the positives of being open and show them what would happen if we weren't open and get all of people on side that I needed to get on side, like the animal ethics committee and the deans of certain faculties and other people in university management, uh, our legal team communications. And I, I did that. I went and I did my lobbying and politicking and fact-finding and allaying everybody's fears and, of course, appealing to their financial side. And I presented a discussion paper to our two highest committees at the university. And by that time, I had so much support that it went through without a problem. And the committees actually approved openness as an initiative at the university one year before they signed the openness agreement. That's awesome. I mean, fear is such a powerful um, demotivator for for love and progress, right? And it's astounding to me. I mean, we know clearly what silence has done for us, right? We see it all the time, and and that's ironically what has created the fear, right? The fact that we haven't we haven't shared the information, and so um, it just seems so obvious that if we can just tell our truth and and be very very open and transparent, you know, with full context, which is not something the public's getting currently uh, from most of the uh, groups that oppose this work, that, you know, the public will have an opportunity to decide for themselves where they are with this issue. And of course, that's what Get Real is about. And I'm just blown away by how successful you've been with this in New Zealand. Now, you're also involved in a group called the Australian and New Zealand Council for the Care of Animals and Research and Teaching. And I'm just going to call it ONSCART. Maybe you can just describe uh, this group a little bit for us and, you know, when you decided to become a board member and why. What attracted you to this group? They asked me three or four years ago now if I would join the board. And I really jumped at the chance. They have a great reputation. I knew several people on the board. 
we are an independent body, which was established to provide a focus for consideration of the scientific, ethical, and social issues associated with the use of animals in research and teaching. And we've got representatives from research, animal welfare, and education communities. So there, it's, it's quite a mix of people. ANSCART's uh, Standing Committee of the Royal Society of New Zealand. And it operates on a purely advisory basis and provides guidance on information to any interested parties, including animal ethics committees, which is like your IACUC, your animal care and use committees, scientists, teachers, regulatory authorities, granting bodies, government, animal welfare organizations, media, the general public. So the primary goals of ANSCART include promoting the responsible use of animals in research and teaching and facilitating informed discussion and debate within the community regarding these matters. Mm-hmm. And why do they believe the public needs to know this information? What difference does it make? Well, to be honest, there's a couple of different reasons, one of which is, is for the health and well-being of the people working in the industry who are trying to save the lives of, of people and animals and who love and care for the animals involved in research. They shouldn't have to worry about what they say. And if they go to a party and someone asks them what they do, that they're scared to say something. And that if they do, someone will think that they're terrible people for working in animal research. They should have people be well enough informed to understand what they're doing and why and respect their commitment to science and medicine and understand that they do love and care for animals and that it is a hard job to do what they do, but that actually they're doing it for the greater good of our global community. And if we don't get people on side, then we may lose the social license to do this important work. If we lose that social license and we lose that ability to do the research and we stop our slow animal research too early, then (laughs) the ethical implications of that are too difficult to even think about. We all want the replacement of animals, which happens all the time. Obviously, we, we make small changes all of the time and find ways to not use animals, but it can't happen completely unless there are technologies to replace them. And then, of course, there's the basic science. How can something be replaced that we haven't found yet? For the most part, people in this industry are doing the best they can. They're constantly trying to improve and appreciate, and they think the world of animals that they work with. And there's always going to be some bad people and bad institutions, as in any industry, and they should be held accountable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you touched on a couple of things there that that are important. Um, I think one is, just as you said, I mean, if if you're not doing this work well, then yeah, I mean, you should be held accountable. I mean, uh, and you're not one of us then. And I think the other thing you touched on is, you know, how can we replace something we haven't found yet? I, I think people don't get that. And certainly uh, here in the U.S., you know, our groups uh, here that oppose research are constantly talking about how we can do all of this work without animals because there are alternatives now. And um, PETA, for example, says, you know, we we can send people to the moon and, you know, we can do all of these other things with technology. You know, why on earth are we still using animals? And And the answer is, well, you know, like the cell phone, for example, we created that. We designed it. We did not design biological systems. We just are biological (laughs) systems, right? So we can't possibly know all there is to know about biological systems because we didn't design them. We just are them, right? And we're trying to learn about that. And also, as you said, the more we learn, then the more able we are to put that knowledge to task and create other ways to get answers that don't include animals, right? Or that are more predictive than animals, right? At the end of the day, that's really what we're after, right? Stronger science, faster cures, fewer animals. I think that's the direction we all want to move in. 
But first, we all have to get on the same page. And at least here in the U.S., we have several groups that are continuing to kind of push this false narrative that all of these treatments and cures that the public continues to demand, you know, can just be had by alternatives that exist right now and that animal research is unnecessary and it's just archaic and, and there's no good reason for it. And, and of course, that's not true for the reasons we just discussed. Now, in your situation in New Zealand, you also have a fairly established, uh, what we'll call an anti-vivisection group, as they're often like to call themselves. And this is the uh, New Zealand Anti-Vivisection Society. And um, you've had some very interesting interactions with a leader in this society that has sort of developed over time. And I would say that you've established uh, what I consider to be a promising uh, functional relationship. Okay. (laughs) Um, Well, we do actually have a great relationship that I really value, and I know that she does too. I met her when she was invited to speak to the board of Anscart at a meeting. One of the other board members had had some positive contact with her and asked if we would have her along to have a listen. And of course, you know, you want to be open and friendly, but it was definitely world of the weird, right? I mean, here you are um, hosting the executive director of the Anti-Vivisection Society. Um, you know, when we listened to her and some of what she was saying just seemed to me like, I mean, complete foreign worlds apart, no way, you're idealistic, I don't know what you're talking about. But I thought, look, stop it, just stop and open your mind and open your heart a little bit. So she stayed to have lunch with the board and we got to chatting and we ate a vegan lunch together. She's vegan and I'm vegetarian. And we had some really just kind of pleasant conversation. So Tara and I have a really great relationship that we both value and it's so good with me and Anne's cart is so open to communicating in various areas and listening to various people about animal research that she and one of her colleagues at the Anti-Vivisection Society were invited to speak at the ANSCART conference in July this year. And it went really well and it was appreciated by all the participants. It, it wouldn't have been actually too long ago that they would have been protesting outside and we would have hired security. And one year, actually, a venue canceled the conference booking at the last minute due to concerns about protests. So we've come a long way. And so she, I think, had a lot of positive interactions with people that she didn't anticipate and came to all the dinners and functions and things like that. And and yeah, it actually went really, really well. Everyone was really, really pleased. How did that happen? What did, what did she say that, that brought everybody together? You know, because I would have expected them to be, just as you said, very concerned, you know, maybe not as open as they should have. And I applaud her for being as brave as she was uh, to actually attend, right? So she must have said something that registered in the minds of these folks and made them think, hey, wait a minute, you know what? We have some commonalities here. What was that? What did she say? You know, she was part of a couple of discussion panels about the future of openness, about openness going forward. And she had and has and and brought forth ideas that many of us agree with. I mean, we all agree, for example, that we want replacement of animals in research. So when you say we would like animals to be replaced in research, then everyone can understand why that would ring true. She talked probably a little bit about her striking at the source campaign, which has a number of things that I support and relate to, uh, such as funding for replacement strategies. Of course, that would be amazing if the government would fund research into replacement, right? We all want that. It would be great. 
maybe there should be someone on all of the ethics committees whose sole job is to look for replacements. Actually, maybe there should be a database of replacement techniques so that people can all go to one place and see replacement techniques around the world. So there's a lot of things that were brought up. Some of the things we totally agree with, some of the things you think, oh, that'd be a good idea, but that's a long shot. And then some of the things like taking all of the money that goes to animal research and changing it to be put into <laughs> replacement research funding. You know, that's where we we split the hair a little bit. It's like, well, yeah, I think that there should be more funding, but I don't think it should be taken away. Yeah, because we're not there yet. Right. I mean, the irony there is that the more we learn from studying animals, because again, we, we didn't design biological systems, right? The more information we have to use to develop, you know, more predictive strategies that don't involve animals. We can't get to this point of replacing animals until we learn more about biological systems from animals, right? And so I, I totally agree, like there has to be this blend. And I also totally agree that we need to be thinking about this as a whole strategy, right? Funding should be dedicated to that because it's a key part of the strategy, but it's this one or the other thing that isn't realistic. But this is amazing. I just, I just love it. And I, and I, I hope I get to meet Tara, but you, you did go through some things that weren't as smooth as what you just described. There was an issue uh, at your institution that became a matter of public record. And there was a little bit of uh, a friction around that. And I think that that was key in the development of your relationship initially. Uh, maybe you can describe for our listeners, uh, to the best of your ability, you know, what actually happened, uh, the, the animals that were involved, and what prompted further discussion between you and Tara, and you know, just sort of how all of that evolved. So we have had some email contact always. And something that I love about her and the people at her organization is that whenever there's emails from them, they're very respectful and kind and courteous. And I really appreciate that. And what that does is make us all treat them with the same respect. And so, yeah, we had um, little interactions. And then about a year later, what actually happened was, so I signed up ages ago to see any of their notifications, sign up as a member, whatever you call it. And so I got all of their email notifications. And so one Wednesday afternoon, I was <laughs> walking to give a talk to the technicians and saw this communication come through their email channel to their supporters and members about the University of Auckland and horrible eye research with rabbits. And, you know, there was the pictures of the pussy eye and the the information about that they would likely have been locked in full body restraints and unable to move and prevent them from struggling or touching their eyes and that their eyelids were pulled apart and they had Manuka honey rubbed in their eyes and they weren't rinsed. So it's all this horrible stuff with the University of Auckland's name on it. And I just, oh, I just really was like, wow wow, what is going on here? We were in the middle of an Official Information Act request at the time that hadn't come to its conclusion. So when people ask for information, you have 20 working days to give it to them or you ask for an extension. So this was within the 20 working days. I knew there was a request. I knew that the lawyers were just getting ready to send it out. And then all of a sudden this came out and I was kind of was like, well, you know, why would you do that? And I was, I was upset. Yeah. And so I went to our head of legal and our, and our media and communications manager. And I, I basically said, can I call her? I thought it was more respectful and personal and more effective and less open to interpretation to just give her a ring 
And so I did. And I very respectfully said, look, I know you got to send stuff to your supporters. I know you've got a mission and you're trying to <laughs> trying to fulfill that mission. But, you know, some of this would have been rectified by waiting for that Official Information Act request. So we had a little conversation around that. And she kind of said, well, I use the information in the peer reviewed paper. And I said, well, you did ask for the formal approval. So what they had requested was the actual animal ethics approval that granted the ability to do this research. So I said, well, I mean, don't you want it to be as true as it could be? And she did the whole, well, it was true. I used the information that I could find in the peer-reviewed paper. And of course, then she filled in the blanks with what her organization wanted or thought might be occurring or did occur. And because they didn't have all of that information in the paper, they felt like they were justified to put that information out there. And Honestly, part of this is our problem. If we don't report accurately what we do, then how are we supposed to expect anyone to have that information thoroughly? Now, in saying that, even if you put all of the information that you want in a peer-reviewed paper and use the ARRIVE guidelines, as you should when reporting in Viva Research, it doesn't mean that people can't cherry-pick information. Look, we had a long talk and she very kindly said, look, the focus is more on highlighting the rabbit research in general and not about the university, which I respected. And so she did correct some of the information on social media and take our name off of that. And when she sent out an additional communication, she used some of the information that was in the approval that was sent to her. But there was cherry picking involved. So she used some of what was in the approval, but not putting it in context. It still made the research look like it wasn't a great thing for the animals when in fact it was much better than it sounded. So if you say that the eyelids were pulled apart and for five days in a row, scientists rubbed a Manuka honey emulsion directly into their eyes every single day, no rinsing or any other method was used to alleviate pain. One, it makes it sound like it was both eyes and it was one. Two, the lower eyelid was pulled down and four drops of a dilute liquid was put into the eye. It was not sticky or, or smeared or rubbed. Um, it was just four drops. And in the ethics approval, it clearly stated that rinsing and pain relief were unlikely needed because there was no reason to believe that the drops were irritating. And in an in vivo test on corneal cells, it hadn't shown any irritation and it was a honey-based preparation. There was also a pilot study done on one animal first with a veterinarian watching to make sure that this was the case. So, and then, you know, of course, there's the hideous picture of the rabbit with the pussy eye that, of course, would never, never have been tolerated in any way, shape, or form. And, you know, kind of went on to say that on the fifth day, instead of applying a diluted substance, they rubbed an undiluted high concentrate version into the eyes, undeterred by the risk of causing excruciating pain and or even blinding the animals. It's like, no, hey, again, nothing was rubbed. There was just no possibility that any excruciating pain or blinding could have occurred. It was so innocuous. So again, it, it's just that cherry picking and overstating things that were a bit 
much for me. But what we did was we spoke about improving communication between us in the future and that I was happy to clarify points that may be unclear. And look, we talked really honestly about a lot of things. And even when we disagreed, we really had respect for one another and treated each other with kindness um, and tried to see the other one's perspective because we both know that we love and care for animals and only have their best interests at heart. I understand that part of the reason that she does what she does and phrases things the way she does, which I wouldn't always agree with. And sometimes I read the newsletters and things and go, okay, well, <laughs> but you know, she's, she's trying to get something done. She wants the replacement of animals. So even though it isn't the way I would go about it, I understand that they're so desperate to have that happen because they really think that it can happen, that they're embellishing or, or I don't know, um, making things seem as as much to their side as they can so that they gain the support. But again, if they did get animal research replaced tomorrow, there's a whole different set of ethical issues that we would have to deal with in not being able to look for cures for diseases and treatments for diseases. So we've really come down a path together and again, treating each other with respect and kindness. And we are working together on something right now, which is really important, which is, is our adoption strategy. And um, we hope that that moves into a New Zealand wide adoption strategy for animals and research. That's very promising, you know, because everybody will work together in that direction. And I don't know that we have a Tara here yet. I, I mean, I, I hope we do. And, and if you're out there in the United States, um, Tara USA, please do contact me. I want to, I want to meet you. <laughs> I want to start speaking with you um, because I just think this, this coming together so that people can speak in truth, um, even though they don't completely agree is, is a step in the right direction. And I'm just so excited for you and happy for you and happy for Tara and happy for New Zealand uh, and happy for our animals and, and happy for our, the people who work with them and happy for our researchers and, and happy for the patients, uh, human and animal that, that benefit from all of this work and, and the direction we can go in um, when the Motivations are as pure as they seem to be between you and Tara. Um, do you have anything else that you want to share with our listeners before we close the episode? So this, this is not where I thought I would be. <laughs> I mean, my residency training was in zoo and wildlife medicine, and that's where I thought I would be hanging out for my whole life. So I never thought I'd be working in the lab animal industry, but I'm so, so pleased that I'm here. Uh, the rest of my family are all human medical clinicians. And I want there to be cures and treatments for as many diseases as possible. I actually lost my mother in her 40s to breast cancer. She was initially diagnosed in her 30s when I was 15 years old. And I've inherited the BRCA1 gene and I've undergone a preventative mastectomy and had my ovaries removed to try and prevent getting cancer. And I can wholeheartedly say that if I can play some small part in helping prevent a teenager from hearing her mother has breast cancer or a young woman in her 20s from taking care of her dying mother in hospice and then having to decide if and when to have her breasts and ovaries removed, then it will have been worth the heartache of knowing. And there is heartache. We all have heartache knowing these animals are used in research. It will have been worth the heartache that animals need to be part of and die for the research to take place. I'm grateful to every single animal. And I have peace of mind that at my institution, we do the best we can to minimize the use of animals, treat the animals with love and respect that they deserve, and only use animals when needed. 
That is very beautiful. And you are very beautiful. And um, I also appreciate you sharing such deeply personal information with our listeners. It's very powerful and impactful. And I am super, super glad that you're okay, because this world would not be the same without you, sister. It's clear that Jody and Tara still don't see eye to eye on many things. But they're talking and learning from each other because they appear to genuinely respect each other and their mutual love of animals. It's a level of civility that we haven't been afforded in the U.S. for many decades. The research community here in the U.S. still battles with the fear of openness that Jody mentioned because the animal rights groups here in the U.S. continue to perpetrate physical and psychological violence against the very people who are working to improve and save their lives. We heard about this already on several episodes of Get Real, and others are being victimized by this movement as we speak. The question is, why? Is this about love or anarchy? Is it about solutions or fundraising? And how do we get it to stop so we too can begin to make informed and rational decisions together with all of our stakeholders about how to move in the direction of stronger science, faster cures, and fewer animals? We'll discuss this and more with Jody and Tara, who will both be joining us on the next episode of Get Real. You can check for announcements by following us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and I'm super grateful to all of you for joining us today. If this podcast has shaped your understanding of public health and the involvement of animals in research, I really need you to become a Get Real monthly supporter. I can't do this alone, and your donation will help us continue to bring honest content to everyone who benefits from medical advances. We all deserve to know the facts. You can become a supporter and learn more about how research animals are truly cared for by visiting our website at getrealpodcast.info. We'll talk soon.